Welcome to Pod Academy. So hi, my name is uh, Peter Vermeulen. I'm a Belgian scholar working mostly on American literature. And I came here to take part in a panel on um, the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene is a term that has gained quite some currency in the last few years. The Anthropocene basically expresses the idea that um, as human life has been changing the ecology and the climate of our planet in the last uh, two and a half centuries or so, we should begin to take that into account when we talk about human culture uh, more generally. Um, so especially in this conference, which is devoted to the end of the so-called American century, this new notion of the Anthropocene, to me and to quite a few other people, seems a useful way of talking about, about the new ways we now imagine what America is, what human life is, what we as humans can do to address the problems, the crisis that uh, are facing us. Uh, in the paper I presented, I focused on a very tiny literary element in contemporary popular scientific and literary texts, the idea of a, a future reader, the idea that you tell a story, you write a novel, you even write a scientific texts by imagining a geologist or a historian in the future looking back on our present in order to tell your audience more about that present. Okay. So I was interested in that little, small little idea as a way of opening up a broader discussion of what it means to um, tell stories. Welcome to Pod Academy. That was Peter Vermoulin, whose talk, Future Readers, Narrative Knowledge in the Anthropocene, is the subject of this podcast. Part of our series on US studies, recorded at the Rupture Crisis Transformation Conference at Birkbeck, University of London. Back to Peter and his talk in full. Uh, one of the abiding themes in criticism of the post-9-11 novel is its lack of a firm political orientation. Disoriented by the drawn-out campaigns in Afghanistan and Iraq, baffled by the sublime abstractions of financialization, and or threatened by the neoliberal solicitation of creativity, contemporary American fiction at best offers, in Karen Err's recent words, a provisional matrix of possibilities that counts as what she calls a proto-political orientation, not as a consolidated political vision. Err situates American fiction on the way toward the geopolitical novel, as her recent book is called, but not quite there yet. One of the challenges facing contemporary fiction is precisely that the geopolitical is not what it used to be. In an age of energy depletion and climate change, Questions of American exceptionalism appear decidedly parochial when the geological upscaling of human life that we call the Anthropocene threatens the very exceptionality and survival of human life. As the American century begins to leak into the Anthropocene, our customary protocols for making sense of particular forms of life is inflected by an awareness of the human's interpenetration with different life forms, whether we characterize these forms as non-human bacterial, or even geological. The changed geopolitics of reading and knowledge production not only twist the field of American studies beyond its recent transcultural and ecological turns, it also affects other and seemingly more robust, robust 
disciplinary formations. In this presentation, I will want to focus on one particular literary device that has migrated to non-literary discourses, the figure of an imagined future reader. Obviously, the fiction of a posthumous reader, looking back on our present, is nothing new. It is, in a sense, constitutive of the overlapping genres of dystopian fiction and science fiction. What is more interesting, I think, is that the contemporary future reader often oscillates between the disciplinary identities of a future historian and a future geologist, the former competently interpreting humanity's current failures, the latter dispassionately reading the, geolo the geological record of its passing. The fact that future readers are imagined in disciplinary terms at all, I believe, points to the fact that they are being mobilized to address a particular crisis in knowledge production. I also believe that the fact that they oscillate between two different and incompatible modes of reading, one historical, one geological, highlights an instability in the project for which future readers are ostensibly invoked that of relaunching narrative knowledge about the present from a vantage point beyond the confusions that mark that present. Ultimately, I will conclude, the oscillation between historical and geological futures signals an uncertainty about whether our forms of life can be meaningfully narrated at all, or whether narrative now functions more properly as a way of reimagining the human as a life form that is constitutively entwined with other lives and that is beginning to anticipate its own extinction. So what different modes of reading are embodied by the figures of the future historian and the future geologist? I want to begin with a seemingly straightforward recent example of a future historian, if only to show how he nevertheless morphs into a geologist and into a different mode of reading. So this is the pretty straightforward example of a future historian. The example is the short book, The Collapse of Western Civilization, which was published earlier this year by two eminent historians of science, Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway. The text aims to convey the threat of climate change by having a historian narrate the end of the American century from the Second People's Republic of China in 2393 where he looks back on the decline and fall of the West 300 years before, so 80 years in our future. Apart from communicating scientific insights about the realities of climate change and informed estimations of its dramatic ecological and social consequences, the text also spends a lot of time explaining why it needs to invoke the device of a future historian. One of the problems it diagnoses the present with is the unraveling of the relation between knowledge and power. Nowadays, knowledge, we read, no longer empowers its holder, as the impact of scientific knowledge is threatened by a potent denial industry, the topic of Oreskes and Conway's successful 2010 book, Merchants of Doubt. Yet at other moments, the text makes the more interesting point that there is also something inherent in the protocols of science rather than in its translation into policy, that sets us on our way to collapse. The problem is double. First, science operates by an excessively stringent standard for accepting claims of any kind, a standard of certainty that blinds it even to what is highly probable. 
something like anthropogenic climate change. Second, scientists are trained as specialists focused on specific aspects of the atmosphere, hydrosphere, cryosphere, or biosphere, and they just find no way to articulate the broad, slow, incremental patterns that make up climate change. So this disabling, rigid focus of science explains why Oreskes and Conway adopt a literary device, which allows them to do what novels have, in a sense, always done, narrate the probable in a way that articulates different spheres of knowledge into a coherent pattern. This is, of course, what the device of the future historian aims to deliver, a lucid reading of the dynamics of contemporary culture that offers an insight only available in hindsight. The short text contains an extensive lexicon of archaic terms, which also features the fictional entry called Synthetic Failure Paleoanalysis. Synthetic Failure Paleoanalysis, we read, is a fictional scientific discipline that aims to analyze past failure, specifically by understanding the interactions or synthesis of social, physical, and biological systems. The text understands itself as an instance of such synthetic understanding. The collapse of Western civilization mobilizes the future historian as a device that enables a superior reading of the present. In a way, that is what dystopian fiction generally does. Yet the collapse also wants to be more than just a dystopian fiction. It also wants to hold on to the authority of science, and it does so most obviously by including four maps, which show the difference in sea levels between the years 2000s and 2300 in four iconic drowning sites, the Netherlands, Bangladesh, New York, and Florida. These maps do not participate in the text's synth uh, synthesizing efforts. They do not contribute to the complex multiple causalities it aims to map. Instead, I want to argue, they generate a different kind of future reader, one tracking the Earth with a purely geological gaze. This reader cannot gauge human intention or design, but only rec uh, record and map the difference between two different geological conditions, that pertaining in 2000 and that in 2300. I suggest that the future historian here morphs into a future geologist, who register human life as, in Claire Colebrook's words, a certain mark that would be singular and would designate a concrete event and nothing more. This slippage in the text activates a different mode of reading, one that does not, like the historian, read forms of life in, life in light of their fateful failures, but that rather reads the record of life forms that are immortalized through their geological inscription. Human life in Oreskes and Conway's book oscillates between the status of an intentional responsible agent and that of a geological event. In the influential theorizations by, among others, Deepesh Chakrabarty and Ian Bokum, the disjunction at the heart of human life defines the Anthropocene. By routing this disjunction through the figure of the future historian turned geologist, Oreskes and Conway's text also underlines that this disjunction joins two incompatible futures. One, as a form of life that can be erased under the pressure of its own dysfunctions, and another as a life form whose fate is not that it will be erased, but that it will be made immortal, as a trace preserved forever in the rock. In spite of its best humanist intentions, 
the collapse of Western civilization discovers that human existence on the planet will be readable after the non-existence of humans. It raises the specter of a future reading without humans, a bare geological registration of human life as a geological fact devoid of intention and design. Okay. I now went to a short second example and then come to some kind of theoretical conclusion. Okay. We encounter a similar slippage in Max Brooks's 2006 novel, World War Z, which is subtitled An Oral History of the Zombie War and also has a very ugly cover. But, uh, <laughs> that's probably a coincidence. The book, as those of you who've read it, and it's actually worth reading, uh, the book mainly consists of juxtaposed testimonies of a global array of survivors of the near-future zombie war. Throughout the book, the voice of the narrator is hardly present. Still, the narrator's short address to the reader in the book's introduction brings it closer to the humanizing concerns of Oreskes and Conway. He informs us that the book we are reading emerges out of a disciplinary conflict between him, the narrator, and the chairperson of the United Nations post-war commission report for, him, for whom he used to work. The oral histories we were given to read were filter out, filtered out of the final report because they offered feelings and opinions that interfered with the report's commitment to objectivity, to clear facts and figures unclouded by the human factor. If the narrator backgrounds his own voice throughout the novel, as he does, he does so in order to allow the testimonies to come forward and assert the difference between the human factor and what he calls the creatures that almost caused our extinction. The narrator, in other words, dons the selfie-facing guise of an oral historian in order to let narrative do its humanizing work. Yet, as a disciplinary struggle that underlies this narrative makes clear, this superior understanding shades into a more radically posthumous perspective. The oral history we read is a leftover from a comp compilation of cold, hard data that would allow future generation to study the events without being influenced by the human factor. The problem with this dispassionate approach, according to the narrator, is that future generations, you have this on the screen, might not care for chronologies and casualty statistics. They might give in to personal detachment. They might forget about the human factor, which is the only true difference between humans and zombies. The narrator understands narrative as a device to ward off carelessness, detachment, and indifference in future readers. He wards off, that is, the specter of a reader who looks back on human life as a mere mark, a mere event that can be recorded as data and nothing more. And of course, there is nothing particularly surprising about the claim that the zombie novel is concerned with the incipient non-humanity of human life. What is more significant, I think, is that it routes this concern through a disciplinary division similar to that of Oreskes and Conway's popular science writing. Both texts assert the humanizing power of narrative while raising the specter of human life's incipient minerality, its reduction to a fold in the geological record, there to be recorded by a device that might not be, new, be human. Even as it is narrating itself into significance, human life in the Anthropocene 
simultaneously seems to be training itself into a realization that it will, and here I invoke Claire Colebrook again, that it will one day be perceived as nothing more than a geological scar. So now I try to bring this together. What does this double occupation tell us about the status of narrative knowledge in the Anthropocene? What happens to narrative when it is no longer only a device to contest or compound our understanding of the transcultural and ecological unraveling of the American century? What is narrative when its humanizing work also raises the specter of the human as fossil to come? To address this question, I briefly want to turn to the work of narrative theorist Mark Curry. In the last decade or so, Curry has theorized narrative as a practice that trains its readers in apprehending the present as constitutively divorced from itself, as it is also the object of a future memory. When reading a novel, Curry explains, readers are invited to anticipate an unknown and, to that extent, open future, the part of the story that they haven't read yet. But as this story, and this supposedly open future, is already written at the time we start reading the novel, it is also radically closed. So the result of this paradox is that everything we read when we read narrative fiction is read in light of what it will come to mean, and that every present experience is reconceived as always also the object of a future memory. For Curry, flash-forwards, flashbacks, and other anachronic devices make this constitutive feature of narrative unmistakable for the reader. The result for Curry is what he calls a depresentification of lived experience, a tendency to inhabit the present as always under erasure, as primarily the object of a future memory. For Curry, who focuses mainly on 20th century fiction, 20th century narrative allows readers to apprehend the depresentification of experience. I want to push Curry's argument one step further and suggest that in the Anthropocene, anachronic devices, such as imagined future readers, help apprehend a more radically depresentified experience. Not just an experience that is also the object of a future memory, but one that will one day only be an object of memory. Narrative, in this geopolitical dispensation, not only rehearses, develops and expresses a sense that the present is the object of a future memory, it also conveys a sense that the form of life currently experiencing this present, we, might not be the one remembering it in the future. In the early 21st century, in other words, Narrative seems to have become one of the places in which human life, even while it tries to make sense of its existence, rehearses the inevitability of its extinction as a form of life, as well as its posthumous readability as a past life form. Even as works like World War Z and the collapse of Western civilization try to make sense of our present by narrating it from a different but still human future, the narrative mode they adopt and the sense of decline they convey congeal into the intimation of an even more different and decidedly non-human future. These narratives ask, ask us to think and perceive, this is Claire Colebrook again, most of the good lines are Claire Colebrook, uh, and perceive, think and perceive as if our world would be readable in the absence of what we now take to be readers. They invite us to read ourselves as if we no longer existed, 
as if we were no longer present to guarantee sense. They are sustained exercises in abandoning human life to a geological gaze that is rigorously uninterested in understanding human exceptionality. So in conclusion, I have been arguing that contemporary narrative is affected, affected by the more capacious geopolitical parameters of what we might as well call the Anthropocene, which destabilizes traditional protocols of reading. This also helps explain the geopolitical hesitation of the contemporary novel, which Err remarked on, which hinges on this question of altered assumptions of readability. I conclude with one very brief example, Theo Cole's acclaimed 2011 novel, Open City, which many of you will probably have read. The novel mobilizes a vast array of political memories, cosmopolitan gestures, and global signifiers without quite managing to constellate them into an achieved geopolitical vision. Cole's narrator, a psychiatrist in training called Julius, restlessly tries to make sense of contemporary life, but fails to be moved by the spectacles he records. At times, he appears as the careless, detached, and indifferent reader that World War Z warns against, as he raises the specter of a radically posthumous figure who merely records the present and is rigorously uninterested in articulating it into a political vision. The novel consistently uses the trope of legibility, indirectly through its invocation of the city of New York as a layered palimpsest, and more directly when the narrator, in a key passage, identifies himself as part of the still legible crowd traveling the city. Still legible among generations of crowds that are no longer or not yet legible. Here also, the novel's commitment to keep or render things legible opens onto a larger geopolitical scale. A scale on which readability as we know it is no longer guaranteed, but might give way to a geological gaze. In one of the novel's last scenes, there it is, Julius contemplates the stars as we see this geological gaze morph into a, ge a cosmological one. The stars through nature was their persisting visual echo of something that was already in the past. In the unfathomable, unfathomable ages it took for light to cross such distances, the light source itself had in some cases long been extinguished. In the dark spaces between the dead shining stars were stars I couldn't see, stars that still existed and were given out light that hadn't reached me yet. So the sky in this passage cannot be read for meaningful signs. Instead, it indexes the increasingly inescapable reality of a world without us. The novel here seems to motivate its aesthetic decision to fashion itself and its narrator as mere recording devices, recording light and darkness without constellating them into geopolitical significance, but preserving them for a future reader who might. If this anachronic moment preempts a consolidated geopolitics, it intimates that Anthropocene narrative is, among other things, or has become, among other things, an exercise in extinction. That was Peter Vermoulin with his talk, Future Readers, Narrative Knowledge in the Anthropocene. This podcast is part of our Rupture Crisis Transformation series, offering new perspectives on American studies. 
We caught up with Peter before he left to hear what else struck him about the day's discussion. All the talks and presentations he mentions are available from the Pod Academy website, along with many others. Um, what I was very interested in was the panel um, we've just heard about, which dealt with, uh, with the way technologies alter the way we think of ourselves as human beings, as subjects, as selves. Um, what spoke to me uh, very directly there is this idea that uh, the development of big data, the fact that uh, many aspects of our behavior are now being quantified and turned into data is actually actively um, changing the way we inhabit the world, the way we experience ourselves, the way we have poten the potential to change our own lives and have an impact on that world. Um, what spoke to me in that panel is that, um, especially in light of what I talked about, is that it's not just the developments like climate change and um, pollution, energy depletion and so on that um, very radically change the way we now live our lives. Also technological developments like uh, that of human life turning into data um, is in a very similar way um, making life a lot less cozy, um, a lot more um, post-human to use one term that academics like to use in that context. So to me, um, the essays on the uh, presentations on the Anthropocene this morning and those on data just now were uh, very much in conversation with each other, which is always a good thing. This podcast was produced by me, Joe Barrett, with Lucy Bradley.